Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Bavarian Podcast Works. For the first time in what's been, I feel like, ages, but it's probably actually only been like a month or two or something like that. It is Tom Adams here to guide you through this episode. And for the first time, at least in my podcasting career with Bavarian Podcast Works, I am joined by BFWs and now BPWs, Teddy Sun, who has recently made his podcast podcast debut for us, albeit a very, very good two set of episodes. I believe it was two. But all the way on the other side of the globe, I am joined by Teddy today. So, Teddy, how are you doing? It's a pleasure to be with you here. Yeah, a pleasure. The pleasure is all mine, Tom. Um, I'm doing well. Uh, it's been a hectic run into the final few matches of the season, including international games. But um, I'm also not seeing any shortage of Bayern or football-related news. So that's keeping me busy so far. Yes, uh, just to segue off of that, you know that when you support and follow a team that's nicknamed FC Hollywood, even when we're now in this sort of depressive lull in football, you know, we've become so accustomed to matches being on so often since the pandemic and resuming matches from the pandemic. Everything's been so conflated and congested. We're really not used to this lull that we're experiencing. We pretty much have nothing until preseason friendlies return in July, uh, at least for the men's side of the game. Obviously, we have the women's Euros coming up, which we hope Germany uh, does very well in. But for, for large parts, it's just going to be no competitive action until Bayern season resumes. And even for us, the first round day of Paypal call is going to come after our first Bundesliga match. And even the Bundesliga is coming earlier this season to make room because we have that break in the middle of the season for the World Cup in Qatar. But as you said, Teddy, as a Bayern fan and a Bayern website, there's no shortage of things to talking about. And since we've last recorded our last flagship episode, we've had some movement on the transfer market. And obviously, I'm referring to Ryan Gravenberg from AFC Ajax becoming official, pen to paper, the photo shoot. We've got it all. He is officially a Bayern player and very much looking forward to it. And we've also agreed the deal for Liverpool Sadio Mane. Of course, he still has to have his medical this week put pen to paper, do the photo shoot, you know, the uh, quote-unquote Bayern lean, where he takes all the pictures, does his uh, first interview and whatnot. But um, unless something very surprising goes wrong in the medical, that is pretty much a done deal. So, um, and of course, obviously, we've found new Sarah Mazraoui as well from AFC Ajax. So, so Teddy, I know that's three big signings for us. I know there's a certain big name that may be on his way out. We might not uh, get to him today because there's been enough talked about him lately. But, you know, Obviously, Mane is the biggest one, the most expensive, but this pair of players from Ajax is a big deal as well for our squad. And just want to hear, like, uh, you're just a brief reaction to all three of these signings. Like, how do you think they're going to uh, better the squad? And, you know, if you were to give kind of those three transfers a letter grade for the summer thus far, like, what would it be and why? Um, well, I think so far the transfer window has been pretty promising. Um, especially compared to the last couple of transfer windows where we didn't really have any action at all apart from one or two, um, not even big signings for that matter. Um, but this time, even before the transfer window is, is, you know, well and truly underway, we've got three, well, two official big signings and one pretty much on the way. Um, when it comes to, okay, let, let me go over the signings briefly one by one. Mazrawi, he's a right back. Obviously, we haven't plugged that um, hole in right back since Philip Lahm retired. And I think he is going to be 
a pretty good addition to the squad, especially considering um, Julian Nagelsmann possibly going for a back three next season. He, I know that, or at least I've heard that he can operate very well as an attack and wing back as well as a fullback. So he can provide some versatility on the right side of the, of the defense. And that will also help uh, Benjamin Pavar possibly make his transition to center back where he says he's more comfortable in. I guess we'll have to see if that's true. And as for Gravenberg, um, I'm a bit less optimistic about him compared to Masrawi. That's not to say I don't think he's a good player. I just think that if there's one position that Bayern are stocked in, it's central midfield. And what with the reports of us going after Konrad Leimer of Leipzig after this, that means we have we already have five central midfielders in Joshua Kimmich, Leon Goretzka, Marcel Zabitzer, Gravenberg, and potentially Leimer. Now we know that the likes of Karantan Tolisso and Mark Rocha have left, but then again, we also have Jamal Musiala who can play in the middle. So that might be a little bit of congestion in that position, but then again, I guess on the flip side, we do have a very grueling, hectic schedule coming up with the World Cup in the winter, and a deep squad is going to be essential if we want to make good runs in the Champions League, the Pokal, and the Bundesliga. So maybe that's a blessing in disguise, who knows? And of course, the elephant in the room, who is Nadia Mane, it's, I will not deny that I am excited because he has proven multiple times with Liverpool that he is a world-class player, that he's a big game player for that matter. Um, I don't know how he will fit into Bayern's system just yet because I don't really watch Liverpool play and I don't really know how he fits into Jurgen Klopp's system, but on the other hand, it is a big signing. We haven't had one of those in quite some time, actually. I, I think our last big world-class signing, or at least something close to a world-class signing, was Felipe Coutinho and Ivan Perisic back in 2019. And even those weren't permanent signings. They were loan deals. So, so yeah, it's, it's a big, big signing for the first time in forever. And... Um, I try not to be too optimistic about new signings just to kind of loosen the pressure on them, but I can't help but be excited about the prospect of somebody like Mane joining Bayern. And I'm pretty sure I'm safe to say that I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one. Yeah. I think cautiously optimistic would probably be the appropriate term because there you're mixing, you know, the best of the optimism and the pessimism. Right. And I know we have a good balance of that at BFW. I won't mention any names, but of course we have um, people who kind of approach things with a pessimistic approach. But just to add to that, you know, kind of going in descending order from what you were just talking about, obviously Mane is the big one of the transfer window. A lot of people are very, very excited about this as someone who is a Liverpool fan. You know, I, I don't want to, as always, I don't want to talk too much about Liverpool on this podcast. I know people will give me flack, but especially in the end of this season, you know, Mohamed Salah kind of hit that rut that he never really seemed to recover from, in my opinion. Yes, he did score the last day of the season against Wolves, that goal that wound up not mattering <laughs> because, uh, or, you know, because Manchester City had scored their third goal uh, in their match against Aston Villa. Salah didn't know it at the time. And then you could see those famous videos of him reacting to the crowd saying, oh, no, mate, it's 3-2, it's 3-2, and just, just looks so dejected. But, um, and then obviously different injuries to Liverpool's front line. You know, Mane, we saw him play as a false nine, a center forward from the right, 
from the left. Klopp has this thing where with Salah, he would almost do, not to say he's the same type of player as Aryan Robin, obviously. Robin at Bayern had his signature moves cutting in from the right onto that left foot and could seemingly whip in a shot from any angle, even if he was facing Manuel Neuer <laughs> before shooting. But where Klopp would start Salah on the right, even though he's a left footer and always play Mane off the left, you know, I never quite understood why he would never flip-flop them. Uh, he would interchange them at center forward sometimes with Salah being that that center forward guy and sometimes Mane, which I think personally he does to a greater effect. But I always felt Diogo Jata was best in that position and then Salah and Mane on either side of him. But translating that to Bayern, you know, I think a lot of it depends on the other elephant in the room. And obviously that's Lewandowski. Is he going to be forced to stay and fulfill the final year on his contract or will he be leaving to Barcelona? And I think you bring up a good point with our already congested midfield. And even, even if we lose Lewandowski with Mane incoming a little bit of a congested forward line, but without a traditional number nine, which we've been used to for as long as Lewandowski has been a Bayern Munich player since he joined on that free transfer transfer, excuse me, from Borussia Dortmund. So I think that's going to be a very interesting dynamic, but as you approach it with that cautious optimism, I think the biggest thing for me is how long Nagelsmann has been a fan of Mane and the fact that he's faced Liverpool twice uh, at separate managerial tenures with both TSG Hoffenheim and obviously RB Leipzig uh, during those tenures. And he's been a big fan of Mane's for as long because obviously Mane was on the winning end of both of those uh, respective occasions in the Champions League against Hoffenheim and uh, Leipzig. I believe one was the group stage playoff to get into the group stages. And then the next was, I think the round of 16 um, in the, either the 19, yes, I believe it was the 1920 season. Um, excuse me if I'm getting that wrong, but anyways, so that, that to me gives me all the optimism. He knows the ins and outs of Mane. He knows how he works and perhaps Nagelsmann wants to sort of transition uh, to a more fluid attacking line where there's not a traditional number nine, unless we wind up, Replacing Lewandowski, if he leaves with someone like uh, VFB Stuttgart's uh, Sasa Kalajic, I'm pretty sure I probably just butchered his name. It's a tough one, but you might have a better uh, pronunciation of it, Teddy, than myself. But And we still don't even know, Teddy. I think we, we kind of skipped over Serge Gnabry. We have no idea. if he, keep, he, he seems to keep refusing these very, very favorable, generous deals, like just under 20 million euros per year, which for a player who's performing at the current rate that he had been performing for most of the Hinrunda and Rukrunda last season, a very generous offer. But, you know, I think it's a little bit telling that he's rejected them thus far. We don't know if he's going to be a Bayern player next season or not, but in the same way um, that there's all of that space up front and we don't know who's going to be fulfilling what role, obviously Coman, had a great season. Uh, Leroy Sané kind of hit that wall uh, midway through the uh, the Rook run. It just never seemed to recover. Mane is going to bring that different element to the table. And working back to the midfield, you know, you mentioned Gravenberg, and there's already Leon Goretzka, Joshua Kimmich. We don't know if Conrad Leimer is definitely going to be coming or not. The depth is one thing, but just kind of looking at Nagelsmann's preferred starting eleven, like. I think it's safe to assume Mane is going to be in there, but you already kind of touched base on Masrawi and Gravenberg, but how often do you think these guys are going to be starting, if at all? Well, as for Masrawi, I feel like he does have a pretty decent shot of being a surefire starter, especially with 
um, if Nagelsmann does decide to go to his preferred so-called solid back three, not the hybrid that we've seen so far, I feel like if that does happen, then we then Masrawi does have a pretty good shot of slotting into that right back slash right wing back role. And I'm pretty confident that we're going to be seeing a lot of him over the course of next season. Um, I'm not saying that uh, he's going to be the only right back starting for us. Of course, Pavar can slot in there whenever, but I feel like from what we've heard so far from the board and from and from news regarding the team, we're not going to be in the hunt for another center back, which for me at least translates into Pavar is going to be transitioning into a full-time center back more often than not. And that leads me to believe that, well, then his normal place on the right flank is going to be taken by Masrawi, if not Josip Stanisic. But then again, Stanisic is still young. He's relatively inexperienced, although very talented. So I think Masrawi has a decent shot of starting pretty much, I'd say probably like seven or eight out of 10 matches at the very least. As for Grovenberg, I think, um, I think he'll, his shots of getting into the starting 11 are slightly lower than that of Masrawi maybe not even slightly more than really that much lower because we know that Bayern's starting midfielders, or at least the two of them, are Joshua Kimmich and Leon Goretzka. And even if they do have a sudden drop in form, I don't feel like it's going to be a huge change, mostly because um, the quality of the bench players in regards to the central midfield role. I know I touched on midfield congestion, but on the other hand to that, there is a slight gap between the starters and, and the bench players in central midfield. Mm -hmm. And I feel like Goretzka and Kimmich are the real surefire starters in that role. And Gravenberg, Sabitzer and Limer, if he does come, will be the understudies to that role. So there is that. Um, you did say Mane would probably be a cornerstone in Nagelsmann starting 11, and I totally agree with that. I just don't know if it's going to be on the wing. I guess it will be if Lewandowski ends up staying, or if he does end up going this summer, then it probably will be as a false nine, as he's done so well for Liverpool over the past half a season or so. Now, whether he will he replicate Lewandowski's product in terms of goals that remains to be seen obviously but from what I've seen Liverpool do this season them coming very close to completing that historic quadruple that does give me a little bit of hope that we might not be as in, in as dire a situation if Lewandowski does end up leaving just because Mane is a very capable player true he's not a true number nine but he does. He has shown that he can flourish in that false nine role. And will we get Sasha Kalajic? I don't know. Obviously, I heard that Borussia Dortmund are after him. Although I did also hear that they're after Sebastian Aller of Leipzig. Oh, no, I'm sorry, of Ajax. <laughs> I knew what you meant. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, we'll have to see where we go from there. But. Um, feel like at least two out of the three summer signings will be confident that they'll have their place nailed down in the start in 11. But 
also we'll have to see how everyone reacts during the preseason games. I, I don't know if we have that many preseason games because there's not because the league does start a bit earlier because of the World Cup. But in those couple of games, we'll see what Masrawi is capable of. We'll see what Mane is capable of. Hopefully they do deliver and we can go into the league. We can go into the season, the Super Cup, the Bundesliga opener with a sense of security with or without Lewandowski or Gnabry for that matter. Yeah. And it's, I think touching base on the fact that you kind of just explaining that Mane is really kind of the only surefire guy who's going to be starting kind of from the get-go, if you will. I think it's refreshing, you know, listening, especially to Maz Rawi and Gravenberg, the types of things they're saying, like how happy they are to have joined Bayern, you know, pretty much both of them had said something along the lines of when that call came in and it was confirmed that Bayern Munich wanted to sign me, uh, there was no choice. Like it was obviously an automatic yes. And knowing Bayern's squad and, uh, and obviously the amount of times we faced Ajax in recent seasons in the Champions League and, uh, cracking matches at that too you know i think i can remember the 3-3 draw where thomas muller you know kind of replicated a scene from karate kid <laughs> where he gave up uh, i don't remember if it was dusan tadic or someone he kind of like uh he's going for the ball obviously but he gave a a pretty nasty stud kick to uh like i said i don't know if it was tadic or somebody else at the time and then that clip of uh masrawi's just like absolute rocket of like a diagonal at the Allianz arena it was just like a sensational pass like the champions league official twitter account has reposted that several times in the past couple of seasons Uh, so to me it's very refreshing to see these guys probably both realize you know, they're not going to walk straight into the starting 11 and they might very much be squad players for the first season or at least the first half of the Hinrunda, as you mentioned, the, the congested schedule because of the World Cup and everything having to be so conflated that there's going to be injuries. There's going to be a necessity for rotation, especially while we're pushing across all three fronts. And obviously, we hope we do that for as long as we can, hopefully going the distance in all three. It's, you know, Nagelsmann is going to have to have that dexterity and that flexibility. And it's, I feel like it's a very difficult thing, especially for players who have passed that threshold of gaining any sort of prominence based off of where they come from. You would argue Ajax isn't as big of a club as Bayern Munich. And I say that very cautiously, you know, because I don't want to offend any fans of Ajax or the Eredivisie for that matter. But it's very easy, especially for these younger players, once they gain any sort of prominence. And I think we've seen this (laughs) cough, cough, especially in the Premier League, their sense of worth kind of gets uh, very inflated, especially in a transfer marketplace that in of itself is becoming very inflated. And certain clubs, you know, as we've mentioned off air, will pay 100 million for a player that sits on the bench, um, which you would never see that happen at Bayern Munich. And if it does, it would probably be years and years from now. Because I just cannot imagine that happening anytime soon, if it ever even does happen. So I think that's a good point that, you know, if especially if some Bayern fans are on the fence about these guys, that's a really good thing, you know, because I'm sure these players know. Um, they might say they don't read the news or like transfer updates, but I'm sure like Gravenberg is aware that we are heavily interested in Conrad Leimer from RB Leipzig. This is a player who Nagelsmann already has a good relationship with, would know exactly how to use him. Um, they, I think they like he would also know Goretzka, especially from last season with that patellar issue. In my opinion, really probably got pushed in Der Klassiker. Maybe shouldn't have played as long as he did because it took him a while to come back from that issue. Um, And I I think that it was definitely 
a big miss not having him because, as you said, it's normally that double pivot of Kimmich uh, and Goretzka that is the bona fide starting uh, spot in the midfield. Um, so I think it's re- very refreshing to see a guy like Robin Brink. I'm sure he has to know all of this stuff and he's still willing to put his head down and um, become a Bayern player, work for his spot and, and do a job based off what Nagelsmann um, wants him to do. And it'll be very interesting to see how this all pans out. And I think cautiously optimistic, Teddy, as we mentioned earlier, is the best way to approach it. Um, Absolutely. So I've got to give our audience here like a full disclosure. This this Zoom thing that we're using right now has kind of told me that I have to upgrade to pro. <laughs> Um, so I'm kind of trying to time this to segue because I think we're going to touch base on Germany's Nations League uh, endeavors over the past couple of weeks. We wanted to touch base on what we what we saw, what we felt from that, and then kind of preview the break for the Nations League matches prior, prior to the 2002 World Cup in Qatar kicking off. So, Teddy, with that said, for those four matches that we saw from Die Mannschaft, it's a little bit crazy that we have Hungary sitting atop of this group right now, followed by us and then Italy and England at the bottom of the group. Uh, but I'm sure you're loving that, Teddy. Uh, but from a German perspective, because that's what we're focusing on, we saw some different looks from Hansi Flick. Obviously, it was a great opportunity for him to do that. But looking back on those matches, are there some things that you saw that you really liked? Anything that you saw that you really disliked or perhaps even specific players to you that, that really stuck out during those four matches? Um, as for the, well, let's, as for the good parts of the team as a whole, I really liked what we saw against in the home matches against England and Italy, the 1-1 draw at the Allianz Arena against England and the 5-2 win against Italy in Mönchengladbach. First off, now, was that a die from Harry Kane to get that penalty? Um, a little bit? I don't think it was a dive because there was definitely <laughs> contact. I feel like it was just kind of, of course, there might have been a bit of exaggeration from Kane to get that penalty, but <laughs> I feel like it was just kind of a careless challenge from Nico Schlotterbeck. But, and again, he's a young lad. He'll hopefully learn from this experiment, his, this experience, and he'll grow into a top quality center back at Dortmund. Now, was there and, not a question uh, of offside in the buildup to that too? Or am I thinking of a completely different scenario? From that there bit? was, there was, but I feel like because it came off a German player, the offside didn't matter or something. I don't know. There was just yeah. like so many different calls regarding that decision. That it's tough. I, I, I remember the uh, champions league final being so confused as to why that Real Madrid goal didn't count. <laughs> yeah, I, like, I know. Okay, right? So, so yeah, like... that was offside. Then it wasn't offside. <laughs> then it came off this player and that. And yeah, I was pretty so, much just like, okay, I'm happy, but I still don't know how I am. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, offsides are tough to, to judge with or without VAR. So I'm just going <laughs> to yeah. leave it at that. But otherwise, uh, apart from that last second penalty, I think Germany did really, really well in that game against England. Oh, yeah, definitely. Especially when you compare it to last year's game against England in the Euros. That was just, you know, Germany really didn't turn up to that game. Sure, they had shots. They had shots on target. They had that really good chance from Thomas Müller, which sadly he fluffed. But apart from that, they really didn't look like they were going to win this game. Whereas in this game, Germany was fully in control. They were creating chances. They were sadly not taking them, but still that's a work in progress. But overall, it was just really fun to watch Germany actually dominate against a top team like England. and for the first time in God knows how long as well, because I think for the last four years, I don't think Germany has ever 
really performed against the top team apart from that 3-2 last guess win against the Netherlands way back in 2019 or something like that. But yeah, I like that. And I really liked how they built on that performance against Italy in the last game. Sure. There was that little blip against Hungary when they didn't really play as well as they thought they would, but we've seen what Hungary can do over the past four games or so. And we've seen that they're more than capable of taking points from big teams like England and Germany. So We'll just call that a small, a small blip in the process. I think it's just, uh, I think it did give Hansi Flick and his men something to work on, which I think is great, considering we don't really have that much time and, uh, for preparation until the World Cup. So that's good news. What I didn't like was, I think, I think this is pretty obvious, the inefficiency in attack. Now I know this was pretty much. Um, fixed in the Italy game, in the last Italy game, the second one. But overall, until then, Germany had only scored three goals in three games. Now, it's good that they were scoring consistently, but I also don't think that it's good for a team of Germany's caliber to only be limited to one goal per game. Now, of course, there's the question of whether Germany's attack with the likes of Timo Werner or Kai Havertz or or Bayern's misfiring winger duo, Serge Gnabry and Leroy Rosane, will they be enough to carry Germany to glory at the World Cup? Now, I don't know exactly how that will transpire at the moment, because I don't think any of those four players are surefire starters in Hansi Flick's 11 at the moment. I feel like the one closest to... Uh, a starting 11 player is Timo Werner, but even he has been benched for, I think it was the game against England. So we can see that none of, none of the players have really guaranteed their spot in the starting 11, at least in the attack, apart from Thomas Müller, who we'll get to in a bit. But yeah, so overall, the efficiency in attack needs to be improved, obviously, and I'm sure Hansi Flick will be working on that for the next three or so months until the next uh and last international break in september before the world cup and then we'll see what kind of germany we we can actually expect in qatar but overall i think the four matches really gave us a candid look at where germany is at the moment because up until then apart from that one one draw against the netherlands back in march we didn't really know where germany was at sure they had big wins over the likes of armenia and iceland and Liechtenstein, but you know l- look at the teams i'm mentioning right i mean yeah. no disrespect <laughs> to any of those teams but they're not really like world beater teams they're not the teams that you gauge a team like germany's strengths against but we've seen we've faced some good teams this month we've we've had the likes of italy england and hungary three very very good teams And that's why I really liked the Nations League draw when it was made. I mean, first I was like, ah, this is the group of death. I mean, of (laughs) course, our luck is like horrible. But then I figured, you know, it's going to be good preparation for the World Cup. Germany needs to spar against big, big teams to really show what their weakness is and what their strengths are. And I feel like they've passed these tests with not really flying colors apart from the Italy game, but... I think there is ample room to be slightly optimistic, more optimistic than the last the last World Cup, of course, going into Qatar's tournament. And um, yeah, I'm excited to see Germany play, which I haven't been for God knows how long when Yogi Löw was in charge. 
So, so yeah, I really liked it. As for players who stood out, I think the easy answer is obviously Jonas Hoffmann of Borussia Mönchengladbach. Um, he, I think, definitely nailed down his starting spot after some really good performances in all four games. I don't think any German player can be... Um, can say that he had four straight good games apart from maybe Manuel Neuer, but he's a goalkeeper. Yeah. So, and we come to expect that from him. Exactly. So I think the rise of Hoffman, whether it be as a right back or right wing back or, or winger for that matter, I think that's really promising from him. I also think that this is going to be a bit of a surprising choice, but I also think Lukas Klosterman of Erbe Leipzig, he was actually pretty good in defense. Now I know he's not really a really, really attacking right back like Hoffman might be. But I think he really did a good job of covering Hoffman's lines when he was overlapping. Uh, Since he also plays as a center back, I think he did a really good job in cutting off passes and putting in good tackles when he had to. So that's definitely promising. Um, The defensive line overall, I I liked what David Rahm was capable of. I've I yes. know Niklas Zule and Nico Schloderbeck, they were kind of shaky, but overall, I don't think they messed up too bad, apart from Schloderbeck's late conceded penalty against England. Antonio Rüdiger was also great. Uh, so, yeah, I think the Manuel Neuer was outstanding as usual. Mm-hmm. So the defense looks pretty good to, to me. It's definitely an improvement from what we saw under Lev, um, to the point that I don't think we need to consider calling back the likes of Jerome Boateng and Matomo. So that's that's good. Um, as for the midfielders, I think, and this is coming from a guy who loves Leon Goretzka, by the way, I do think that Ilkay Gundogan and Joshua Kimmich are pretty much the starting duo from now on, mostly because Goretzka's form hasn't really been the same since he's came, come back from that long-term injury. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, but also it's good to have high quality options like Goretzka, whether he's on the bench or in the starting 11. I think the real place, the only place that Germany needs to improve on is the attack. But then again, that's, that's leaps and bounds from where Germany were maybe this time last year when they pretty much had to improve like on every aspect of the game. So yeah, <laughs> I, I love the Nations League games. I know they were nothing more than glorified friendlies, unlike the Dayful Super Cup. It, it like let's be real, these games are pretty much glorified friendlies. But yeah, yeah, I, I like that um the players tried hard. I, I think they gave it their all. Um, I think Flick uh, did a good job in maybe not against Hungary, but still overall in the four games, I, I think there were more good things than bad to look at. Um, and again, that's just a huge improvement from when the team was a, a year ago. And yeah, for, for once, I'm enjoying watching Germany play. I'm looking forward to the September games and I'm not going to make any predictions for the World Cup just yet because there's still five months to go until the World Cup and a lot can happen in terms of in terms of the squad planning regarding you know random injuries, which hopefully don't happen. But yes, knock on wood. Et exactly, et cetera, et cetera. But overall, I'm pretty satisfied with what we've seen so far and hopefully we see a lot more of that. Yeah, and just to clarify, now granted, I'm sure the, the Daft Bay may wind up scheduling some sort of friendly um, that's not a nation's league match prior to the world cup kicking off, but just to clarify for people. So at the end of September, to be specific, September 23rd, we do face Hungary again 
at home in the Nations League and then England away uh, just three days after that. So as far as matches before the World Cup, from Dimanshaw's perspective, those are the two that are listed for the Nations League. Like I said, there might be a friendly or two tossed in there, but it is difficult to see that happening because remember, that's going to be in and around all of the domestic club seasons starting. And, you know, as Teddy was just mentioning, especially at Bayern, we know our way around bad injuries, of course, every season. So I, I think a lot of national federations will do everything they can to mitigate those risks. You don't want to have a plethora of people out um, when you're going to make your final roster for the plane to Qatar. So, you know, a lot can happen between now and then. And I agree with a lot of the stuff Teddy said. And, you know, I remember joking on our Twitter feed. It's like we talk about, you know, this, this question marks still being in Dimanshaw's attack. You know, when in doubt, just have Jonas Hoffman run forward. <laughs> he seemed to be like the main guy in attack for those two games. Obviously, the Italy match, the final Italy match, the 5-2 kind of skewed that data. But let's remember, um, you Roberto Mancini, after that finalisma that they just got steamrolled in uh, by Argentina at Wembley Stadium, you know, it's kind of the first time we've seen that trophy have been up for grabs. You know, that was pretty close to uh, starting 11 from what you would have seen last summer when Italy beat England uh, in penalties in the Euros final. And then I'm pretty sure we saw, and all of us can agree, while there were some appearances, I think uh, Florenzi was in there, uh, Spinazzola, who was fantastic at the Euros last summer before he got, I believe it was an Achilles injury uh, towards the end of one of the matches. Um, other than that, and, and a few cameos from some more prominent Italian players, like Mancini really rotated his squad heavily. Um, so had they actually qualified for the World Cup, which it's still amazing that they didn't, it, they probably would not have seen any of those starting 11s other than maybe the one that was in the finalisma in any World Cup matches. But obviously they didn't qualify. They failed to beat North Macedonia, which was probably the big shock of the World Cup playoffs that actually took place when they were supposed to. I think it was in March. So, um, I mean, you have to take that into account, but even still, you know, as Teddy was mentioning, these are pretty much glorified friendlies, but, you know, for some of the smaller nations, they do have a bit of impact uh, as far as like seeding for qualification groups for uh, the next Euros to come. So there is a little bit of that factored into, but um, strictly from a German perspective, I agree with a lot of the things that Teddy just mentioned, you know, it's an interesting juxtaposition of youth and experience in defense with guys like uh, Rudiger and Nikola Sula. And then you have a younger guy like Schlotterbeck, who's had a fantastic season with SC Freiburg. And like Zula is obviously uh, going to be playing at Dortmund next season. He had Jonas Hoffman, who I agree with Teddy, I think was one of the standouts uh, from these four matches, especially with his ability to get forward. At times, it just looked like he was playing as a fourth or fifth midfielder, perhaps even a fourth attacker with how, how well he was able to get forward. Um, I'm a huge fan of David Rahm. I, I love seeing even more of him. I love everything that he does at Hoffenheim, kind of this ability to play as a uh, inverted winger um, in like a back three, if you will, or like a back five. I know with, with oftentimes it's, it just depends on who you're asking as far as it's a back three or a midfield five with those inverted wingers on either side. You know, depending on the person's take, they might explain it uh, two different ways. Uh, but again, yeah, the question marks and attack and, and Teddy, I think it's funny, like every time you mention Timo Werner's name, it's just like Chuck's ears are burning somewhere. And I just, you know, to take uh, the seriousness out of it just a little bit, I find it hilarious that, you know, especially in the first three matches that he was involved in, I know there was uh, one or two he didn't start. As you mentioned, I think it was the England match he didn't start in, but it's like 
the amount of chances he wastes or misses like he's just such an interesting character we all know uh, of course us big fans of the Bundesliga and Bayern we saw him at his best still in my opinion maybe that first or second season that Leipzig was in the top flight I think it was the first season they were in finished second behind Bayern and for a while, they were in first, especially in the Hinrunde, I believe, before the uh, the winter pause. It, it, I don't qu- quite think we've seen the same of him at Chelsea under Thomas Tuchel. To me, I always wonder what it have been like if he did come to Bayern or if he wound up staying at Leipzig for a few more seasons. Obviously, Nagelsmann has the experience with him from his time working with him at Leipzig and the time playing against him when he was um, Hoffenheim manager, but we're all complaining about the chances he misses. And then he goes and scores a brace against Italy, albeit a heavily rotated Italy and uh, a match that we quite frankly dominated and probably shouldn't have conceded two goals. Let's be honest. And probably could have scored seven or eight ourselves, but I I always find it hilarious that he seems to pop up with these contributions when everyone's kind of on his back. It's it's such an odd complex when you think of that, because I feel like this isn't the first time it's happened, but you know, we need someone and I think right now you mentioned Kai Havertz. I think the confidence from Hansi Flick and most everyone who follows the Bundesliga or the Premier League would probably tell you that they have more confidence in him kind of leading the line as a more center forward than a striker, if you will, or a false nine, because you don't want to take that risk. I think we, it, it's painful to go back to 2018 in Russia, but just to quickly touch base, you know, Timo Werner was like kind of used in this ineffective wide role and it just didn't really work. I mean, there was a plethora of things that didn't work in that tournament. And I don't think uh, I need to remind any German soccer fans of that, but you know, we need to have that lockdown. And, you know, I'm a big fan of conveying the voice uh, of the people, especially the, uh, the people on Twitter who communicate with us after these matches and and kind of share their thoughts. I love kind of reading different accounts of how people saw certain things. And Teddy, I want to pose this question to you because we've both kind of just been talking about the question marks that still surround our attacking line. And we've got, we've got the talent there. Like I loved what I saw from Musiala against England. Like he's just has this amazing ability to get out of tight situations. We saw Sané, but we saw matches. I think there was one match where they were talking about how his attitude was bad, even during the warmups. Um, didn't look interested because he, I think he probably knew before the match he was going to be an unused sub. We have Gnabry, we have Havertz, we have Timo Werner. We have all these guys available in attack, and everyone has been baying for uh, Wolfsburg's, Wolfsburg, sorry, Lucas Nemecha to get some action. So we haven't really seen that. Do you think that's something that we might see in this break in September coming up? Or for him, because he seems to be a fan favorite of give this guy some minutes. Obviously, Hansi Flick will know him quite well from his time in the Bundesliga. So do you think it's kind of too little too late for him? Or do you think maybe he has a chance, especially based off of the unreliability of Timo Werner? Do you think he has a chance to squeak into that plane and, and actually be involved? Or is it kind of, as I said, too little too late for him? Um, if I was Hansi Flick personally, I think I would have given, given Mecha a start against Italy in the second match, just because you now I know it's easy to criticize in hindsight. And of course, it's probably hard to question Flick's decision to start Werner after he start after he scored two goals. But <laughs> overall, he is the one and only true center forward that Germany has in their roster right now provided that somebody doesn't like suddenly show up in the next three months leading up to the, to the final break. 
Now, I don't think that Flick will be starting Mecha in either of those two games against Hungary and England, mostly because they are... Flick has said that he does want to treat the Nations League seriously and he does want to get Germany into that Final Four tournament. So I think he's going to go with that best squad of his, which sadly might be involving Timo Werner. <laughs> However, I also do think that Mecha needs to get some minutes because I think um, he does give another option in attack. He is a different player from what we come to expect from other German center forwards like Werner or Havertz or somebody else. And I think that giving him the minutes that he needs will help Germany in the long run one way or another, whether it's something to... I don't know, shake up the attack against different opponents. I mean, we've got the likes of Japan and Costa Rica and Spain in the World Cup, three very different teams with their very different styles. And Germany maybe just going out with the same 11 in all three matches, that just doesn't seem right to me. And I'm pretty sure that Handy Flick thinks the same. Now, will Mecha be a part of that rotate the 11? I cannot say. But overall, I think it is worth giving him a chance. However, I did see him play against Italy for, I think it was half an hour because Mm -hmm. Flick did sub him on pretty early after the game was pretty much done and dusted. And I don't know if, if it was because the game was already dead or if it was a problem with the player himself, but he didn't look all too impressive, which I guess would explain why Flick is so tentative to start him. And again, this might just be because of the team kind of slacking off because, I mean, let's be real, who wouldn't be slacking off if your five goals up? But still, (laughs) in the overall, right? (laughs) Exactly. And, but overall, I don't know if he was that impressive in those slight cameos. And while I do think that he needs more time to maybe unlock his full potential, we also didn't really see his full potential unlocked at Wolfsburg, where he plays. I mean, I think I could be wrong, but I think his tally for the season is like eight gold or something. And that's not really impressive for somebody who you want to lead the lines for the national team. So on one hand, I do understand why Flick doesn't want to start him. I think that if he does get more minutes that he he might have a chance of showing more than he's already shown us which isn't really much but it's a dilemma for flick right because there's two options one is to go with the quote-unquote trusted option of timo werner because he knows there's only two games maybe tentatively possibly a third uh right before the world cup but even even then, that's only three games. So there's not really much time to tinker at this point. At this point, he's really got to nail down the starting 11, push forward as plan A, and hope it works as best as possible, and work on that plan B in the background, which might be something that we've seen in the Nations League against like Hungary or England or something like that. Maybe that inverted back four, three hybrid or something might be Flick's version of a back of plan B that he was thinking about. Whereas the more straightforward four, two, three, one we saw against Italy in both matches, that might be his plan A. 
And on the flip side, there's the option of going for less tested players in September, like because we've already seen what the best 11 can do in these four matches. And there does need to be a level of flexibility and especially in short-term tournaments like the World Cup, you need to be able to react on your feet. Otherwise you're just going home. And I'm, I would not be surprised to see Flick try something new in September. Okay, I might be a little surprised, but <laughs> still, I, I think that there is a slight chance that we might see some players that we haven't seen so far, especially because I liked what Flick did in the two games against Italy. And, uh, I'm sorry, against England and Hungary. He gave the likes of Musiala, David Raum, and Jonas Hoffmann a start, and they delivered brilliantly. And um, who knows, maybe Flick will use these two games in September and the potential third in November, which may or may not happen, to test out maybe some new players and see what they can bring to the team. Um, I don't know if there was anyone left out with any major injury this time around. I know Marco Royce was out with some sort of muscular problem. I don't know, but... um, We'll be able to see him, provided that he stays fit until then. We'll be able to see him and how he fits into the attacking lineup. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll, there's so just so many possibilities, so many things that can happen in September. And mind you, there's a long way to go until September. We're still like three months away. Yep. And of <laughs> course, and of course, things might also change in the month and a half of a season that leads up to said international break. Who knows? Maybe Leroy Zane and Serge Gnabry will suddenly have another breakthrough. And that would be nice. Be... That would be nice. Exactly. That would be nice. Uh, will it happen? I don't know, but you know, maybe that'll happen and maybe that'll give Flick some more options. So all I'm saying is it's, it might be too late to consider starting Lucas Necha or yeah. somebody like him, but it's too, it's not too late to completely like it might be too early to completely shut the door on him, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, hell, maybe Hansi Flick's plan C after these Nations League matches is just playing Jonas Hoffman as a straight false nine <laughs> with his ability to, uh, you know, his presence in front of goal and how he was able to convert his chances uh, in two of those matches. And then I think, didn't he win a penalty in one of them too? Yeah, uh, I did. think he did. So, I mean, <laughs> hell, if he can bomb forward like that from a defensive or a wing position, why not just play, have him in your pocket as the uh, the false nine? Or, you know, if it's one of those Hail Marys where we're trying to get back into a game, just uh, Nicolas Zula, a.k.a. Celino, doing his uh, <laughs> Zidane roulette moves up top, if need be, as we've seen at Bayern many, many times, as we love on our social media accounts. Um, but anywho, I think it's important. I think it kind of just clicked in my head when we were talking about Nemecha. Um, Timo Werner and all of our attacking options. I believe when I was uh, floating that question on Twitter, you know, it kind of came on the back of me saying, um, I didn't say we're never going to have the next Miroslav Kloza, but it kind of, the question was posed, you know, when will we ever see anything close? Obviously he's a player that can't be replicated. Um, anyone who's a German football fan or a football fan as a whole knows how good of a striker he was, how experienced he was in the top flights, you know, experience in Bundesliga, Serie A, obviously uh, different World Cups, different Euros. So one of Germany's greatest all-time goal scorers, you're never going to see a player exactly like him, 
But as far as from the German perspective, a natural number nine like that, there has been a while. You think thinking back, you know, you want to say like someone like Mario Gomez might have been the last one. And we've seen uh, different things. I think it was Lejonis or Lothar Mateus in the past might have said, give someone from uh, obviously Schalke Nelfia got promoted back to the Bundesliga, but give someone like Simon Tarot a chance, you know, an actual natural number nine who can really get in there and scrap if you need someone with, uh, you know, some height some muscular advantage to just do it, do a job up there. But, you know, I think as uh Dimansha fans for at least for the time being, we've kind of accepted the fact that uh, quote unquote, the next close uh, is not really going to be anytime soon. And we just kind of have to accept the fact that we're playing in a different manner and using different options up front with guys that have a, a great caliber in uh, different things in the in the in their locker, they might not be as dominant in the air as Closa was, or they might not be as acrobatic with their celebrations. You know, I can remember Closa doing lots of front flips and back flips uh, after goals, somersaults, and whatnot. But you know, they bring different things to the table and a lot of the same things. So I don't think the concern with the natural number nine is is absolutely dire. But I think as German fans, and you probably will ex- will say the same thing, Teddy. We've kind of accepted the fact that we're not in that era right now, and it might take a long time before we see that, or it might just be that the game is evolving so much and kind of, you know, these tactics from Bundesliga managers, top flight managers and other European leagues is just changing so much that, you know, a guy like Lewandowski or, or Klosa or someone else, or even, um, what's the guy? Uh, I know there's several Shalais on Hungary, but the one that plays for uh, Freiburg, kind of a bigger presence, like very physical, very strong in the air, not as quick, but, you know, I think that's uh it might be a while before we see that. And all the options that we've just been discussing, I think are much different while they still have that prowess in front of gold, you know, the way they play and how they're tactically set up is just far different from a natural number nine, where the instruction from the manager might be a little bit more straightforward um, aside from, you know, game to game tactics or whatnot, or trying to play off the shoulder of certain defenders that they might have a pace advantage of or off or something like that. But I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Teddy, but you know, I guess maybe do you think we should just accept the fact that the next close may not ever come or it might be a very long time before we see that? I think not just with close but I think German football is in kind of a rut with talent. Because if you compare this current Germany squad to the squad we had in 2014, there's just a huge gap in terms of quality. You had Mats Hummels and Jerome Boateng at their prime. You had... Um, the likes of Bastian Schweinsteiger and Sami Khedira at their prime. And, you know, just, you obviously had Miro Klose, even though, even as old as he was, he still scored two, two very important goals for that matter. Um, so it's, I don't think it's just about strikers, although it's mainly about the strikers, but I think it will be a little while before we actually see Germany become or find more talent to become that international superpower that they're accustomed to being. Um, and I think that Hansi Flick is the right man to guide that rebuilding. Uh, now, I don't want to say how long it's going to take because really there's no, there's no answering that question really is there. Oh, of course so, not, yeah. so yeah, I think we should just wait and see what comes out. I think we are getting promising youngsters from the Bundesliga, like the likes of, Jamal Musiala, Karim Adeyemi, uh, Florian Bertz, once he recovers from his ACL injury, hopefully he does quickly. Um, if I'm leaving anyone else out, please give me a shout out. Uh, Nico Schlotterbeck as well. But uh, yeah, 
like I feel like we're kind of in that transition phase, that phase where there is talent, mind you, but like there's not we're we're not talking about a world-beating squad when we look at this German team. Now I commend Hansi Flick for setting his goals high and saying that we want to get back to the top of the world, we want to win the World Cup and everything like that. But realistically speaking, I don't think that's gonna happen, at least this time around. Um, if they make a good run in the World Cup, maybe say the quarterfinals or even the semifinals for that matter, that, that will be definitely promising. And if we see what Germany did in 2010 with a very inexperienced squad with players like Thomas Müller and stuff like that, just literally hatching out of their eggs. And we've seen what Germany did back then, you know, sweeping aside the likes of England and Argentina and eventually finishing third in a very successful tournament. Um, I'm not saying that there isn't enough talent to do the same, maybe, but we also might have to be a little patient with this current generation. It's like there is a lack of world-class talent, so to speak, and I don't think that's on anyone, really. I, I think that's just kind of one of those eras where all, that all teams have to go through. I mean, England went through one, France went through one, Spain, Brazil, anyone. Okay, maybe not Brazil, but still. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think Germany is in that phase right now, and we will have to be patient with that. Um, and with the proper backing and the proper nurturing, I feel like um, the next generation, we can't afford to be optimistic. Uh, with the uh, exciting youngsters coming out of the Bundesliga now, Hopefully more will follow and we'll see a lot more um, competitiveness from Germany, if that's even a word. <laughs> and yeah, we'll, we'll have to see. Honestly, there's just, the future is so wide open that it's honestly, it's silly to make predictions as early as now. And especially we might be talking about World Cups like the 2026 World Cup in, the, in North America and yeah, again, that's just way too early to be talking about, especially when we got a World Cup coming up right this year. So I think that while what you said about the next closer might not appearing at all might be true because every player is unique, I feel. We never really got the next Gerd Müller, and um, I don't think we ever will because somebody like that is just, well, on God level. But there will be somebody to fill his shoes like Kloza did. And hopefully there will be somebody to fill Kloza's shoes. But we'll just have to wait and see when that is. I think it's like this whole theme of this episode. We could probably just wind up titling this cautiously optimistic <laughs> for everything we've talked about. Uh, it's like the best way to approach everything. But Teddy, I know we've, we've discussed quite a bit today. And I think this is a good place to wrap it up. Mm -hmm. I know uh, we might have some more activity in the transfer market uh, before the window closes, before next season starts. Uh, mm -hmm. We might have some more activity on the German front. Who knows? Maybe a, a friendly will be scheduled. But I think we've covered a lot, and I think this is a good place to end. And, you know, for everyone listening, I was really excited. This is the first time Teddy and I have been on together. I'm sure we'll do it a lot more in the future. We did. Uh, we were very compromising, more so Teddy, with it being so late where he is. So I've got to give a shout out to him and thanking him for being a trooper, 
much as uh you know i need no name or uh schnitzel always have to put up with uh <laughs> recording with me super late in their neck of the woods but again be sure to like rate and subscribe on whatever streaming platform you use to listen to bavarian podcast works always be sure to recommend us to your friends and family members coworkers. even hey maybe just a random person on the street that you think might be a bundesliga bayern munich german soccer fan or even just a football fan in general um, we always appreciate the continued support, continued support, excuse me. Uh, and until next time, which I'm sure might be one of Chuck's uh, weekend warmups, uh, and then our flagship episode next week. Until then, uh, Fuidesane, and thanks for listening. <laughs>